glad you're here this morning. Uh, Our passage today is in Ephesians chapter 6. You can begin to find your way there to Ephesians chapter 6, but I'd also like to take you first to Genesis chapter 1. So uh, find your way both to Ephesians 6 and uh, Genesis 1 as well in God's word today. Our passage in Ephesians 6 is bringing us today to what I believe is a very important topic when it comes to our relationship with God and the ways that we show the love of Christ to the world around us. Over the past few weeks in our study through Ephesians, we have seen Paul hit on many of the relationships and the contexts within our lives that matter the most to us and how all of those scenarios in our lives present us with opportunities to live a spirit-filled life. And so towards the end of chapter 5, we learned about God's word for wives. And then that was followed by God's word for husbands. And then after that was God's word for families. And today our passage is going to show us God's word for the workplace. God's word for the workplace. Part of the reason that I think this is such an important topic for our discipleship is because for the many people who work, Uh, Whether you work full-time or part-time doesn't really matter. It doesn't even really matter what your job is or what the work is that you do. For the many people who work, you spend a really significant part of every week in that place doing that job with those people. And when you start to add up all of the years and maybe even the decades that you spend in the workforce, sometimes all at one place, it turns into an extraordinary amount of time that you spend with certain people and performing certain tasks. And Uh, For some, you may not be punching a clock every day at a certain workplace and and maybe you're not receiving a paycheck or accountable to a boss like we think about those things in the traditional ways because for some of you, your most important work that you do is in your home, taking care of your family, which I would argue on some level is some of the most important work that there is to be done. Uh, Furthermore, kids, you do the work that your parents tell you to do and, and it's not even just limited to a traditional workforce, even in retirement. Uh, we still put our hands to certain projects. We still make ourselves available to help people complete certain assignments. And uh, the work that you do at this stage of life may not be the same as you did earlier in life. But the thing is, no matter what age or stage of life we're at, we never seem to escape work. True? We never seem to escape work. The difficulty for us comes in uh, the fact that sometimes we create this disconnect between, uh, the relation, in the relationship between our faith and our work. And so we think to ourselves, on one hand, I've got my work that's over here. And this is what I do, and this is who I am, and, and this is my work that puts money in my bank account and food on my table and takes care of my family. And, and so everything over here, this is my work. But then over here, we've got God's work. And God's work is the stuff that we do at church and it's the ministries that we serve in and and it's the missions trips that we go on and the small group that we're a part of. And, And so we think to ourselves, I've got my work over here and God's work over here and oftentimes those two things never come in contact with each other. Or maybe, maybe you think that, well, those two things should cross paths. I've got my work over here, God's work over here. How do I bring those together? But we don't really know how to make that connection between those two things. And so sometimes we end up with a few really awkward attempts by Christians to start a business with a Christian name. So maybe you've heard some of these kind of awkward attempts, some of these examples before. How about this one? A coffee shop that is called Hebrews. Get it? Get it? Hebrews, pretty clever, eh? coffee shop named Hebrews, where your cup never runs dry. 
Pretty clever. Pretty clever for sure. Here's another one. How about this? A Christian restaurant that's called the Garden of Eat In. Huh? Also, that's, that's a bit of a groaner if you ask me. But uh, Now, this next one, before we put it up on the screen, this next one is my absolute personal favorite. I would buy stocks in this company if it ever actually existed. Here's another coffee shop uh, put together by Christians called St. Arbucks. How about that? You get it? You get it, right? Meant to be, if you ask me. See, the reality is sometimes uh, we just don't know how to bring my work over here together with God's work over here. We don't really know sometimes how to make that connection, which I think is why it's so important for us to begin in Genesis chapter 1, and that's going to lead us then into Ephesians chapter 6. So earlier this week, in my own Bible reading, I was reading through Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, where it talks about this glorious, all-powerful, eternal God who creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them just by the word of his power. So God speaks and everything comes to be. God says the word and the sun and the moon and the stars are hanging in their places. God moves and, and life and time and space as we know it come into being. And in fact, this whole idea just reverberates all the way through the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis. So follow with me through some of the key verses here in Genesis chapter 1. Let's start in verse 1. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Next verse, verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Down to verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. Down to verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Down to verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Verse 16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Verse 17, and God uh, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Skip down to verse 20, and God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 21, so God created. Down to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then finally, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, That's just from the very first chapter of the Bible. 
And that entire chapter shouts the echo of this glorious, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who brings the universe into existence simply by speaking at the word of his power. And one of the first lessons that we learn about God in the Bible is that our God is the God who works. Our God is the God who works. Notice, just in chapter one alone, nine times it says, God said. Five times it says, God called. Nine times combined, it says God created, God made, God separated, God set them in place. And so we read through that, and there's no question through the opening chapter of the Bible that our God is the God who works. But then you keep reading into Genesis chapter 2, and you see now that God continues down this track. This God who works takes the man that he said he was going to make at the end of chapter 1, he takes this man and gives him a special role in his creation. So skip down to Genesis 2 and verse 8. It says, and the Lord God planted, in a, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then skip down to chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and what we learn here is this. One of our greatest callings is to work, because in our work, we reflect the image of the God who made us. One of our greatest callings is to work because in our work, we reflect the image of the God who made us. Now keep in mind that all of this in Genesis 1 and 2 is happening before Adam and Eve fall into sin in chapter 3. And sometimes we have this tendency to think a little bit that all forms of work are a result of the fall of sin, right? And, and we tend to think that especially when our job gets really hard and it's really difficult and, and it's just tough sledding for us to go into work Monday to Friday, nine to five or whatever schedule it is that you keep and we just think it's so hard and we're like, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. You fall into sin and, and now I have to work. And, and so we think that, but we see through the opening pages of the Bible that it's actually the opposite. That the Bible says that work in and of itself is a good gift that has been given to us by God as a way of bearing his image in the world. However, at the same time, one of the most immediate impacts of sin in the world is that our work has become demanding and difficult. And so we look and we see that God has made work as a gift that he has given to us. It's a good thing that God has provided for us. And yet at the same time, sin has tainted our work and our ability to work just like it has tainted everything else. And so when you begin to see work within that frame of reference, then you also begin to see that there's really no such thing as my work over here and God's work over here. Those two categories don't exist, but instead that everything that we do is God's work, which leads us then to two really important conclusions. Conclusion number one is this, all of our work matters to God. So all of our work matters to God. Tim Keller has a helpful way of thinking about this. If our work reflects the image of the God who made us, then there is no distinction in the capacity for one form of work to bring glory to God more than another form of work. In other words, making clothes and building machines and providing health care and serving food and designing software and caring for children, teaching students, baking goods, living on mission fields, or preaching sermons all have the ability to bring glory to God. 
as image bearers of God. We have been created with the capacity for creativity and ingenuity and innovation and imagination and resourcefulness, which means then that we can take all of the good things that God has made and populated the earth with, and we can bring those things together because God has given us this ability toward resourcefulness where we can make new things out of those things for the sake of of encouraging others and helping others and glorifying God in the midst of that. So in that sense, it doesn't matter if you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. Anything that you put your hands to has the ability to glorify God. So all of our work matters to God, which must mean then, conclusion number two, that God matters to all of our work. God matters to all of our work. Maybe you're here right now and you kind of struggle to see how your role in the workplace or your role in the home or in a classroom as a student fits into a bigger picture. Listen to this quote again by Tim Keller. This helps to give us some perspective to uh, the earthly work that we do. He says this, Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. So all of our work matters to God and God matters to all of our work, which brings us then to Ephesians chapter 6. So flip ahead now in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. And that's the point, really, that Paul's driving home here. And so this is the big idea that we're going to unpack through this passage in Ephesians 6. You may want to jot this down. God-honoring work involves giving myself completely in service, first to Jesus and then to others. God-honoring work involves giving myself completely in service, first to Jesus and then to others. Let's read through this passage together. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5, down through to verse 9. You can follow along in your copy of God's word as I begin reading. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So God-honoring work involves giving myself completely in service, first to Jesus and then to others. Now one of the first things that you notice as we read through this passage in verses 5 through 9 is that Paul uses some categories to establish who he's talking to, to establish who he's talking about. He's talking here to bond servants, what we would know more in our modern vocabulary as slaves. He's talking to slaves and their masters. He's talking to employers and their employees, to bosses and their workers. It's also important for us to realize that Paul is talking about something different than what we typically think of when we think of slavery. Slavery in the New Testament often did turn into something awful, um, something that was abused. And uh, in large part, though, in the New Testament, slavery was not based on the racial inequality that we have come to know over the past few centuries. Slavery, as Paul knew it, was often based on economics or on social status. 
People frequently sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debts or to take care of their family. Uh, There were even opportunities for people who sold themselves into slavery to get ahead socially or economically. There were even opportunities for them to buy themselves out of slavery at different times. However, it still did not erase the reality that some masters abused and demeaned or even threatened, as Paul says in verse 9. And so it's really important for us to come to this passage with that understanding, but also to not forget the greater context of this letter that Paul's writing. Keep in mind that Paul writes this amazing letter to the Ephesians and and to the Christians in this area around Ephesus to remind them of how the gospel applies to every area of your life. So think back to chapters 1, 2, and 3 and all the amazing things that, that he unpacked about what God has done for us to bring us into relationship with him through faith in Christ, that he's adopted us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's chosen us, he's predestined us, he's done it all to the praise of his glorious grace. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's done all of these things and so much more, all for the praise of his glory. And then we come to chapters 4, 5, and 6, and he's telling us now how all of that doctrine and theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3 needs to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And so we come to this passage now in verses 5 through 9, and he's telling us this is how the gospel makes a difference in not only where you work, but in how you work, in how you do your job. And I think what he's about to say here in these verses in some sense, maybe for some of us, we'll take this notion that we have of work and kind of flip it on its head. might even venture to say that there are some of us here who, because of our fallen nature, who think that our work is a necessary evil, that we just have to work. We don't really have a choice. We have to survive. And, and, and I want to venture to say that, that this passage here in Ephesians 6 is going to take that notion of work and totally flip it over. That some are maybe even using work as a means of finding your identity, finding some sense of purpose or self-fulfillment or self-realization. And this passage here in Ephesians 6 is going to take that notion of work and completely flip it on its head. That maybe even some are here and you're working solely as a means of getting money or building reputation or enabling materialism. That in some way, shape, or form, the job that you have is just kind of financing your lifestyle. And so you can have the nice clothes and the bigger house and the fancier car, and you're working for a longer retirement. And so you just work, 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 work in order to get more money and do more things. And, and I think this passage is going to take that notion of work and flip it on its head because this passage shows us that God honoring work involves giving myself completely in service, first to Jesus and then to other people. So, that extended introduction to get us now into this passage. So, don't worry, the length of the introduction is not proportional to the rest of the message, okay? So, we will not be here until Tuesday, all right? So, I want to show you here from this passage three ways, okay? Three ways that we give ourselves completely in service, first to Christ and then to other people. So here's the first way. We give ourselves completely in service to Christ. Number one, with my heart. So work with the right attitude. Okay, work with the right attitude. You'll notice that the heart is mentioned twice here, once in verse four and then again in verse five. Or sorry, once in verse five and again in verse six. Uh, But the main command here is in verse four. Paul says, obey your earthly masters. Obey your boss. That's a command that's actually repeated throughout the New Testament. Paul says almost the exact same thing in Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, 
He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 1 Peter 2.18, like, like, subject yourselves, be servants, subject, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so the question for us then is this. If this obedience is to be that widespread, then what exactly does it mean for us to work with the right attitude? Well, the Bible teaches us, first of all, that it means that our work will be Christ-exalting. Our work will be Christ-exalting. Notice in this passage that Jesus is mentioned in every verse. Did you see that? Verses 5 through 9. Jesus is mentioned in every verse. So employees, ultimately... Jesus is the one for whom you work. Employers, Jesus is the one for whom you work. And Jesus is the one for whom your business exists. Stay-at-home moms, Jesus is the one for whom you work. Students, Jesus is the one for whom you work. Jesus is the one for whom you study. Jesus is the one for whom you rigorously put in the time and the effort to prepare yourself for that day when you will enter into the workforce. So he says here, Verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The idea behind fear and trembling here is respect. It's respect. There's a respect for your boss, not simply because of who they are, but because God has established that person in your life as an authority. So let me just ask you, what does your conversation reveal about the level of respect that you have for your boss or for your supervisor? What does your conversation reveal about the level of respect that you have for your boss or for your supervisor? And maybe it's not a conversation with other people in your workplace, with your coworkers. Maybe it's with people who have nothing at all to do with your job. What does your conversation reveal about the level of respect that you have for your boss or your supervisor? Maybe you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, well, uh, you know what, it doesn't really apply to me because I have my own business and I kind of run my own deal and, and that's great and I speak pretty well of myself, thank you very much. Um, but, but that's not exactly the point. The point then, the question to you would be, well, how do you speak of your customers? How do you speak of the government who holds you accountable for certain things that you do and the ways that you do them? What does your conversation reveal about the level of respect for, that you have for those who are in authority over you? Because notice what he says here, verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. See, we obey Christ because there's this deep, profound, life-changing event that has taken place in us, and we obey him now with fear and trembling. We obey him out of respect for who he is and what he has done. So what Paul is doing here, he's not putting your boss on the same level as Jesus in your life. Okay? He's not doing that. What he is doing is saying that we need to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus over everything, including our work and including our workplace, so that when we obey the authorities that have been put in our life, that's actually our way of exalting Jesus. We do it as we would to Christ. The reason we obey our boss with respect is because when we do, we exalt Jesus. So working with the right attitude means that our work is Christ-exalting, and then also notice this, it's growth-inducing. Verse 6, this one might sting for a bunch of us. Verse 6, he says, not by the way of eye service as people-pleasers. In other words, uh, you don't work hard only when your boss is looking, nor do you work less because you have been passed up for other opportunities. Working with the right attitude means that you work with honesty and integrity. 
Whenever I, I think about that, whenever I think about honesty and integrity in the workplace, one of the first people I think of is Daniel in the Old Testament. You remember his story? He's given a place of prominence in the kingdom and a place of proximity to the king. He climbs his way up the corporate ladder, the Bible says, because there was an excellent spirit within him. In other words, God was with him. But then his co-workers get jealous because of his rise to the top, and they start digging for dirt on him, and, and it doesn't matter how hard they look. The Bible actually says they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. That's remarkable, isn't it? Now, was he perfect? No. But was he faithful? Yes. Think about it. How easy it would have been for Daniel just to cave in when his coworkers started to pile on. To cut a corner here and, and maybe alter a report over there. And how easy it is really for us to do the same. And it doesn't really matter what our work is. In our flesh, we want to please other people, right? Like, we want to give as good of an impression of ourselves to everybody else as we possibly can. And I'll confess, that's just as much of a threat for me as it is for anybody else in this room. Just having this conversation just this past week with a couple of guys on our staff and, and how being in ministry, being a pastor, being in front of people on a regular basis has this way of exposing this level of the fear of man within you that you didn't even know was there. Like you didn't even know it was possible for that to exist until it actually happens. Making sure that you say the right things and you say it the right way or that you do the right things and you do it at the right times and and you've got all of these different things going around and all of these different preferences and, and opinions to try and manage, and it's impossible to keep it all straight. And then, at the same time, to sit back and think and just be thankful for the reality that for as much as I love you, for as much as I love this church and I love what God is doing, I praise God for the grace of knowing that at the end of every day, I have only one master and his name is Jesus. And the same thing is true for you. Your ultimate master is not your boss. Your ultimate master is not your supervisor. Your ultimate master is not your customer. Your ultimate master is Jesus. And there's coming a day when both you and your boss or both you and your supervisor or both you and your customer will bow the knee to the one who reigns over all of the work and over every workplace. So the question for us then becomes, how do we work in a way that's not just people-pleasing? And that's where Paul takes us next. Working with the right attitude means that our work is Christ-exalting, growth-inducing, but then also notice this, it's also kingdom-advancing. The end of verse 6, he says, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Think about it. This is the way that Jesus obeyed his master, right? He did the will of God from the heart. Everything Jesus did was perfectly planned by his master so that his master's will would be accomplished. And in the same way, God has perfectly planned for you to be where you are and to be doing what you're doing. At the same time, I also want you to notice who you are called to be while you are there. So when you think about your work, it's not just the work, it's not just the physical work that you put your hands to. It's also about who you are while you are there. Notice he says here in this verse, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do you notice how perspective-altering that statement is? So think about this. 
You're not just a doctor or a teacher or a nurse or a plumber or an electrician or a stay-at-home mom or a student or a caregiver or a this or a that or in customer service or whatever it is that you do. You are not just those things. You are not even first those things. First and foremost, you are a bond servant of Christ. That word bondservant literally means that, that you've disregarded all of your own interests for the sake of picking up the interests of another, in this case, Jesus. So you've put aside all of your own interests so that you can pick up the interests of Jesus. So when we think about it, a Christian view of work then would be to go into our job, to go into our workplace and pray, Lord, I am putting aside all of my pride. I am putting aside all of my own desires. I am putting aside my desire to grow my wealth. I am putting aside desire to forward my name. I am putting aside all of those things so that I can pick up the desires that you have for me, not only in this job, but in this workplace. Now, is it a bad thing to build wealth? No. Is it a bad thing to advance in your career? No. But when those things become the primary reasons that you have your job, then you've missed the primary reason why God has given you your job in the first place. You are there, and I am here as a bondservant of Christ. That's who you are. You are a servant of Jesus whose primary call is to leverage your life and your work to advance the kingdom of God. That's why we say around here so frequently that anytime you try to find your identity or your purpose or a sense of self-fulfillment or self-realization in the work that you do, that it will slowly crush you. It will bury you because in doing that, you're asking your work to do something for you that it was never designed to do. And that applies to so many different areas of our lives. It applies to our relationships, to our marriages, to our finances, to our parenting, to just about anything you can think of. It applies to that. When we ask the gift to do something for us that it was never meant to do, it's going to slowly eat away at us because the gift was never designed to do that. Only the giver of the gift can do those things for us. So any sense of purpose or fulfillment will come not in what you do, It will come first in realizing the work that God has done for you to make you who you are. It's found only as we realize that ultimately we work for Christ. So work with the right attitude, which leads us then to main point number two. We give ourselves completely in service, first to Christ and then to others. Second, with my hands. So work for the best results. Work for the best results. Verse seven, Paul says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. It's kind of an interesting verse. To help us understand it a little bit better, uh, the New International Version says it like this. Serve wholeheartedly. So notice that word, wholeheartedly. As if you were serving the Lord, not people. Uh, The New Revised Standard Version says, Render service with enthusiasm. Notice that word, enthusiasm. As to the Lord and not to men and women. The New Living Translation says, work with enthusiasm, there it is again, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. I want you to see here that God-honoring work means working hard. It's working for the best results. Here's a survey. Um, I find these surveys kind of interesting, but I'm also kind of a nerd that way. Um, So here's one survey that suggests that for every eight-hour workday, more than two hours are wasted by most employees on non-work-related activities. So just think about that. For every eight hours of work, 
that more than two hours are wasted by the average employee on non-work-related activities. For example, about 45% of people in the workplace surf the internet for personal use during work time. Around 23% spend extended time socializing with coworkers outside of scheduled breaks. So extended time socializing. Roughly 16% do some combination of conducting personal business, running personal errands, making personal phone calls, or as the survey suggests, just generally spacing out when they should be working. Just generally spacing out when they should be working. Now, I'll confess that there have been times where I have sat looking off into the distance Hopefully not while I'm up here, but, but looking off into the distance in my windowless office, <laughs> pondering the great unknown, right? But we all do that to some extent, right? Like we all do that. But, but notice what the Bible says here is that our work ethic is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. In other words, our work ethic is not just telling other people what we think about our work. It's telling other people what we think about how Jesus relates to our work. Which if you pull that thread just a little bit longer, a bad work ethic reveals not just an incomplete understanding of our work, it actually reveals an incomplete understanding of Jesus. And just think about that for a minute. Jesus gave his very best for us, right? Like his absolute, total, complete best for us from the first day to the final day. His perfect life offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. His body raised up on the third day for our victory. Like he did not leave anything on the field, right? He kept nothing back for himself. He gave it all for us. And the calling of our life now is to mirror who he is. Our calling is to mirror who he is in our home. Our calling is to mirror who he is in our schools, to mirror who he is in our classrooms, to mirror who he is in our leisure, to mirror who he is in our retirement, and yes, even to mirror who he is in our work. That's why he says we do our work as to the Lord. Not only do you do your work for the Lord, but you do your work in the presence of the Lord. Like, even as you walk into your workplace, one of the beautiful assurances that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is that he's always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And so every piece of our work that we do is done in the presence of the Lord. Let me just ask you a simple question. What's your plan for when you go to work? Like, what's your plan to do your job well? What's your plan to do the best that you can possibly do in the job that you have been given? Because all of our jobs, whether we like them or not, whether we've been there for 30 years or 30 days, doesn't really matter. All of our jobs are gifts of God's grace to us. Because our jobs are, are helping to provide us with what we need to take care of ourselves and take care of our family and take care of the people around us and advance the mission of God. So how are you stewarding that part of God's grace within your life? Because the reality is that when you do your work, as verse 7 says, as to the Lord, you realize that Jesus is both the giver and the receiver of everything that you do. Jesus gives you the ability to do what you do. 
He's given you the grace to be able to have a job, to work in what you do, to put your hands to that work, whatever that work is. He's given you the ability, but he's also the receiver of the work that we do. Which actually leads us then right into verses 8 and 9 and to our final point. We give ourselves completely in service, first to Christ and then to others. Number three, with my head, work from the proper mindset. We need to work from the proper mindset. So you'll see here, twice in verses 8 and 9, we see this word knowing. Knowing, it comes up a couple of times. We need to approach our work from the proper mindset. We need to approach our work from the things that we already know. So look at verse 8 and consider carefully what it says. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So just pause there for a second. And I hope you see how absolutely amazing that statement is. That whether your work right now is fulfilling or frustrating, God sees the good that you do, even if no one else does, and he will reward it. Even if you put in long hours that no one knows about, hard work that no one cares about, good works that no one talks about, God knows, God sees, and God cares. Even if much of your work is never mentioned by your boss, it will never be missed by God. And so that mindset then is what propels us into our workplaces where we don't have to depend on the approval of other people to give us a sense of purpose or identity or, or self-fulfillment because as Christians, our work is not primarily for others. Our work is first and foremost for God. And if that's true, then our workplace becomes one of the most meaningful mission fields of our entire life. Think about this. We go from here and we fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment so that people in Brantford and beyond will know the love of Jesus for them. And when you begin to look at your work like that, when you begin to look at your job, your workplace, whatever it is that you do, when you start to see it like that, you realize that your work then is a tool. Your work is a tool in your hands that is used for a far greater purpose than just putting money in your bank account or food on your table. Your work is a gift from God that you steward for about 40 or 50 years of your life to introduce other people to the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ for them. Like It just revolutionizes the way that we see our work and the, the gift of work that God has given to us. When God sees the good works that you do in the name of Jesus whether it's sharing the gospel or, or in the specific context of your work where you refuse to cut corners or you turn your assignments in on time or you truthfully account for your work, even when your accounting of your work makes you look bad, like as you do those things, the Lord sees that and the Lord will reward that. Which sets us up then for what Paul says next in verse 9. He says, Masters, do the same to them Stop your threatening. So he has a word now for the masters, for the bosses, the employers, how they're to relate to their employees. And he says, stop your threatening. The threat of punishment was a common strategy for bosses to keep their workers in order. Verse 9, he goes on, says, knowing, so there's that word again, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, Employer and employee are to treat each other with the same respect and dignity. Why? 
Because in a culture that favored the master far above the slave, both needed to be reminded that they will both be held accountable before the same God. Like our greatest accountability for our work is never in a year-end evaluation. It's on the final day for the one who is master over all of the work that we do. So don't miss this. Pay careful attention to this. One day, your boss, your supervisor, your coworkers will stand before Jesus not just to give an account of the work that they did, but to give an account of the life that they lived. They will give an account for the way that they responded to Jesus within this life. And when you consider that, when you consider that alongside of the reality that God has sovereignly put you in your workplace, that God has sovereignly given you the work to do, whether it's in a workplace or it's in the home or it's somewhere else, when you consider that God has put you right there, when you consider that God has put you in your university program or in your classroom or in your neighborhood or in your network of homeschool teachers and families or wherever it is that God has put you, when you put all of those things together, it becomes a little more clear that our work is just tools in our hands. They're just tools in our hands. It is a tool to advance the kingdom of God and to introduce people to Christ for the glory of the one who is ultimate master over all of our lives. Which just emphasizes the point that we've been trying to make all the way along. God-honoring work involves giving myself completely in service, first to Christ and then to others. Oz Guinness, author and apologist, said this, Our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. First and foremost, we are called to someone, not to something or somewhere. The most important part of your work is not what you do or where you do it. The most important part of your work is glorifying Jesus in it. Our greatest delight will come not from, again, what we do or where we do it. It will only come in who we do it for, and we do it for Christ.